Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about the authority mindset. Ooh, I'm excited for this one. Yeah, it's a good New Year topic. Yeah. Still very, very early in the season. And actually in Rhode Island, we're under a ice storm situation. So it's very feels very early of the year here. Oh, man. I guess I shouldn't tell you it's a gorgeous sunny day here then, should I? <laughs> oh, I don't mind it. I like New England. I love everything about it. Uh, cool. Okay, so let's start off with, let's kind of pick apart what the authority mindset consists of. What What are the things in there? You know, what different kinds of things are the concerns for someone who's trying to either foster or encourage or, or grow an authority mindset? When I think about it, I think the first rule is that you, you want to help kindred spirits wh- wherever you can. So it's that helpful mindset, again, within this area of authority that you're building. You want to help people. I also kind of think of it like campground rules. You know, you always, if you talk to somebody, you want to leave them at least as good as they were when you got there, um, <laughs> you know, hopefully better. Mm-hmm. Campground rules. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I have, I think, a bunch of different facets that are kind of rolling around in my head that I think are useful for people who are trying to build a business on top of authority. Um, certainly, absolutely, the desire to help, that the sort of underlying purpose or mission or big idea that you you feel driven to evangelize, to share with people because you believe that they're either being held back or they're suffering in some way or they're in this plight of some kind that you believe that, like you just said, campground rules, you can actually help them in some way to make them better off, improve their life or business or both through whatever it is that you do, you know, whether it's uh, writing or speaking or courses or whatever. And that kind of leads to, I think that there's an important Perhaps it's the same thing, but it might just be closely related is the difference between an abundance mentality and a scarcity mentality. I find it extremely rare. I'm trying to, I can't think of a single case of someone who I would consider an authority who doesn't have an abundance mindset. So that's, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. That's a very powerful way to think about it. To me, what that means is like a scarcity mindset, to boil it down to like basics, scarcity mindset to me is they people who view the world as a zero-sum game. Like if I win, you lose. And an abundance mindset is sort of the grow a bigger pie type of thing. So instead of like, I get the whole pie, it's like, well, no, let's just make a bigger one. <laughs> we, can, <laughs> we can all have pie. I heard Seth Godin the other day he had a great analogy. He's like, if I ask someone for directions and they give them to me, they still have them. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And it's the idea. It's like, you know, lighting somebody else's candle from yours, you're not losing anything. Right. Right. So I think that's critical um, because it boils down to a lot of tactics. If you have a scarcity mentality, you tend not to want to share freely. And if you're not sharing freely, it's going to be really hard to spread your message, which is critical to creating an impact. And then once you're making a, a big impact, then you can find ways to, uh, to fund your mission uh, from people who are benefiting from your thoughts. One of my mentors early in consulting described it this way, and he just said, give first. And he just taught me that. I said, you always give first. And you might never ask. 
you might only give to someone depending on the situation. And that's okay, because he did very much have an abundance mentality is that it'll come back to you in other ways, just give. And so I've always thought of that as part of the you know, the consulting mindset at the very least is that you've got to have this service mindset, this giving mindset. Right. And I'm glad you brought up the word service because I think anybody who does professional services or, you know, whether it's software development or copywriting or legal services or accounting, they'll recognize that they provide a service, but uh, it was not obvious to me until, you know, several years ago now, but it wasn't obvious to me that I was in the service business. See what I mean? Like in service of others. Back when I was a, a budding musician, of course, I was a uh, waiter and worked in <laughs> Your food service. service. Yeah. The mindset, since that's what we're talking about, the mindset of waiting on tables, it never struck me that there was even a a fraction of overlap between that mentality and the mentality of like the consulting services that I was offering to my customers. And when I recognized that, and I know exactly when it was because it was when I read Book Yourself Solid, Michael Port has a very strong service mentality. And he articulated it just that way. Who do you seek to serve? You know, Seth Godin says that too. And it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like it took all of the, all of the things of consulting that I didn't like sort of from the Weiss school of be a baller because nobody wants to work with someone who's not a baller. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, that works, I suppose, but it never felt natural for me. It's just not my groove. When I really connected the two, like, oh, duh, service, service. <laughs> All of a sudden I was like, oh, wow. That was, it was very refreshing. I feel like it aligned parts of my mindset that were out of alignment before and it made it easier when it came to the day-to-day -day tactical things that you would execute and it's like well this is a sales email i don't want to be this way that that people say you're supposed to be but i guess that's what you have to do and then i just sort of threw that out the window and be like mm, how about i just be myself and genuinely care that comes with all sorts of things like well you it's you can't work with people you don't like or you don't empathize with because you don't genuinely care about improving their condition. So it's really just for the money. It sabotages the whole thing. And I think leads to bad engagements on, to on top of it being uncomfortable. It actually is a self-fulfilling prophecy of all of those horrible clients from hell stories that you hear is that, well, you're working with someone who you knew you didn't like. So what did you expect? Yeah. You know, I think anybody who wants to become a consultant should go work in the restaurant industry first. <laughs> I mean, I, I am I am not a pushy parent whatsoever, but I am going to insist that both of my kids work in restaurants. To me, that is critical. I'll tell you, Jonathan, I, I worked at McDonald's that like the second I turned 16, which was the legal age to work at, at that time in that place. I went to work for McDonald's and I worked for, for them for three years. And I swear it taught me everything that I now know about, about consulting service in combination with some mentors in that side. But when you, when you're used to trying to make people happy for three years, it becomes part of who you are, I think. Not that I ever saw myself as a as a waitress to my clients, but it, it's this service mentality. And for me, a lot of that click came when I first read The Servant Leader 
in, I think, maybe the early 90s. A lot of it depends on the environment that you're in. And if you're in an organization where it's about sell, 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 and it doesn't matter who you sell to, you know, of course, you're going to have that horrible feeling of sales. But the people who are listening to this, you've got your own business. You don't have to take business that you don't want. You don't have to take business from people you don't like because you are an authority or you're a consultant working on becoming an authority. It's a process. I want to tack one thought onto the end of that because I want to make it clear that adopting a service mentality does not mean that you become a doormat. And to, to use the restaurant mentality, I've kicked plenty of people out of restaurants. <laughs> So, right. And you do the same thing, right? Yep. It's like, yep. it need, the fit needs to be both ways. Like if they're, if, if they don't get the joke, here's the door. It's fine. This place is not for you. This service is not for you. We are not a good fit. That's fine. It necessitates that you know who is a good fit. And I think uh, certainly waiting on tables or any kind of public facing counter service, you, you learn people very, very quickly it's quite an education. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You size people up and, and you get a sense. We used to, I don't know if this is appropriate or relevant, but we, we got to a point where the bartender and I, would, uh, when someone would walk through the door, we would guess what drink they would order. And we were good at it. We could tell from their outfit, their clothes, their shoes, all that. We could be I like, that's a Cosmo. That's going to be a Cosmo. <laughs> I shudder, to, I shudder to think what what fun you'd have at a bar in L.A. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah, I'm sure I'd be there'd be no chance. But you could you could spot a rusty nail coming a mile away. Ah. The point is that all of this section of the conversation is around this sort of abundance mentality. Find people who you want to serve, who you care about helping and just help them like relentlessly, you know? Yeah, yeah. What that leads to is that sometimes you're going to say no. And that that's part of, I think that's part of the mindset. And that goes with an abundance mindset because there are people who you don't want to serve. You don't maybe, and when I say shouldn't, I mean in terms of your own, your own approach to this. They, they're just not a good fit for you. Saying no is part of that mindset. Right. Not that they're a bad client. It's that right. it's not a good fit for you. Exactly. And trying to force it is just uncomfortable for everybody and it's just not it's not profitable in any sense of that word cool okay so some other what are some other mindsets that are related to this that I that, that you recognize from experience that seem to crop up in people who are authorities well it might be counterintuitive but I think it's about listening I think real authorities, even though we think of them as expounding their viewpoints and they're everywhere and they always have something to say, I think a lot of authorities um, listen more than they speak because it's if, if you're speaking all the time, you start to get in this echo chamber and your authority doesn't progress. It doesn't evolve. It You kind of get stuck in time. Right. You always want to learn. Yeah. Yeah, it's that. And, and maybe that's what it is versus listening. But I think it's that you have to be able to hear what other people are saying, even if they don't agree with you. Right. I'm 100% in agreement about that. And there's a maybe a nuance to it where let's say you've got this plan, you're on a mission, you've got this purpose, you have a big idea, and you're trying to, I feel like it's implied that you're trying to get it across to people, you're trying to spread it. 
and you can be the the world's leading expert on I don't know virtual reality, creating virtual reality experiences for education, but just because you're from you know you've got that domain expertise, you still need to learn how to get that across to other people. So let's say they need they need, you need to get them to buy into it. It's scary. We don't want our kids putting the goggles on their face. Uh, we don't <laughs> want transformation of the public school system. Is can't afford you know you get all this pushback and resentment. But if you believe that that's gonna that's you know VR for education is going to be a step function change in the effectiveness uh, or cost reduction or whatever of the public schools, that's important to you. You can know everything about it, but you still need to learn how to to transfer that realization from inside your head to inside somebody else's head. And you're going to be dealing with lots of somebody else's. And there's going to be lots of different ways, lots of different things that you can say, lots of different images that you can bring up in your storytelling that are going to work with some people and not with other people. For me, I might feel 100% confident about that hourly billing is nuts. I'm 100% confident in that. And I'm 100% confident in implementing that for myself. But communicating it to people who are in a nearly infinite array of situations, I, I need to listen like crazy to understand where they're coming from and then kind of apply, either pull up an analogy or a story or, or some sort of communication that is going to click with them. So the distinction I'm drawing is between knowing your domain and learning how to communicate it effectively. You never stop learning that. Well, and those are two different things. As you point out, that whole communication piece, whether you want to call it a consulting skill when you're consulting one-to-one or one with a small group, but it's really that teaching and it's, yeah, I guess it's communication, but it's also teaching. They cross over here in my mind because when I heard you talk about how you find the right stories and you start to see what makes this kind of person get it, you know, what makes that light bulb go off. And then, and, and whether it's that you hear these kinds of words or it's you're working with these kinds of people. And when I say these kinds, I mean, whether it's a business owner or whether it's a corporate executive or whether they have been doing this for three years or 30. I mean, you, you find ways to clarify who your audience is and then what you find works best to get your viewpoint across. I feel like I'm going to keep learning that till I die. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's no like you're done now. Right. There's no finish line for that. Yeah. They keep, they keep making new people. <laughs> I'm, just sure, I'm not sure what the mechanism is there, but they keep showing up. Well, and they keep having new mechanisms or new platforms. And so, you know, if you were great at standing in front of a flip chart, all of a sudden you need to be great at video and you need to be able to do or you need to be able to do a podcast. This stuff isn't natural for a lot of people. And so we have to learn it just like everybody else. And for someone who's in authority space and you're trying to spread a message, it's going to cross over into new audiences. So like for me, that's happened recently with designers because I went on uh, Chris Doe's live stream on YouTube and got this wave of, of what I would call pure designers on my list. Previously, it was software developers primarily. And I, I know exactly how to talk to software developers because I am one. But the designers, I'm less, I'm less in that world. I have lots of friends that are designers, but I've never been one. So 
it's a new, they have different challenges. They see things in a different way. They respond to different kinds of stories and different, different mode of communication. Uh, recently had the same thing happen, branching into new geographic markets, like people from Israel or Poland or India. As the message goes more global, everybody's in like this different situation. Like, oh, we, we don't have credit card. Like we base, most people don't have credit cards here. So what, now what? Or there's a whole bunch of cultural differences, uh, never mind the different, like literally different language. You just need to listen like crazy if you, and, and it's pretty natural. If you really, if you genuinely want to help someone, like step one is tell me where it hurts. And that involves a lot of listening, asking short probing questions, really listening to what they're saying, not prejudging or pre-prescribing in your mind what they need. And just obviously I'm using medical metaphor. I see it very much like a, a sort of typical doctor arrangement where you're like, uh, I don't feel right. <laughs> you know, something's wrong. I see it a lot of different ways. It's it's we each develop a language. The best authorities have a a language, a lexicon that they've developed. Certain terms mean this and certain terms mean that. And then they use them consistently. But the trick comes when all of a sudden your audience changes. So it's like, okay, so maybe this word meant this in the US, but it means something completely different in Japan, for example. It was interesting. I did a video presentation on personal branding one time for a group of, of Asian Pacific coaches. So it was like Hong Kong and Thailand. And it was just a, it's not a culture that I know. I kept asking the person I was working through is like, all right, so can I say this? Like, what do people think when I say this? And it was fascinating. And what they really wanted at the end of the day was they wanted to hear the American view of a personal brand because they, it felt like bragging to them. <laughs> so it was yeah. this cultural, and I, and because I don't understand the culture, I mean, I was really enjoying the learning process. I had to be very careful about what I said and how I said it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I've noticed in both Canada and Japan giving talks that, and, and maybe this was just my limited experience, but people did tell me after the fact, I'd say like, geez, like I usually do tons of Q&A after these talks, but like, there were no questions. And they're like, yeah, it's, we just don't do that. It's, <laughs> yeah. It calls too much attention to the individual. They don't like doing it. And you know, they'd rather come up to you later in the hallway than like Americans are like interrupting in the middle of the talk. Like, yeah, we're, like we're so rude. <laughs> yeah, we are. Americans are generally yeah. really yeah. bushy. Yeah, we are. Guilty. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, okay, so so what's the list so far is you've got uh, authorities have this service mindset, this helpful mindset an abundance mentality. They are clear on their boundaries, who they're a good fit for, who they're not. They're always listening slash learning. I could go all day on the pricing mindset, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is, which is related to all of it's these related. things actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. it is, but you have to do these other things first or well in tandem anyway. But I think part of pricing, I think of value pricing in particular is it's a continuum. And you have to, sometimes you have to work up your courage to do it and you have to get comfort in this. But one of the things that, that strikes me, I don't know if you do this with your clients, but I really like to have a written point of view statement. And when I say statement, I don't mean a sentence. It's usually three or four paragraphs. It could be a little bit longer, but not a lot. And the idea is that it, it takes your expertise and adds to it your point of view about the work that you do. 
to me, what that does is it provides clarity to the person who's writing it, and it you can use it as a as a funnel almost to or a framework even to make key decisions. So uh, I don't know, like an easy example, Jonathan, would be if a consulting firm came to you and said, well, we'd like you to review our billing rates and tell us what they should be. You'd say no. But if they said, well, would you take an assignment to overhaul how we bill? You'd say, sign me up. It's how you express your point of view. And and in honing that point of view, you know, you take it from kind of the big to the, the more narrow you start to realize the things that are really inherent in your point of view that no one else believes. Or when I say it that way, no one else is is spouting. So when, when you did your <laughs> hourly billing is nuts, there were people who believed that value billing makes sense, but you know they didn't talk about it much, right? Right. It gives, for many people, that sort of a thing, but also this thing in particular, can touch on a, a latent, nerve so to speak you know just like as soon as you point it out you know you point out like the air conditioning hum in the background that you've been consciously ignore subconsciously ignoring and all of a sudden you're like oh yeah that is so annoying and it's like that way with it's certainly like that way with hourly billing it's sort of this um a hidden enemy almost which is why it's so easy for me to get spouting about it because people, most people never questioned it. They just go after it and they're like suffering from the effects of it. And they're like, how come I feel so bad all the time? You know, meanwhile, downing two liters of Coke and eating Twinkies. It's like, hmm, I can't imagine, you know, like, I don't know. Uh, just a thought. Could it be a sugar crash? Uh, anyway. So you, you just automatically, my heart automatically goes out to people who are not having a good time with their business, you know, and I believe that the hourly billing thing and all of the attendant realities of mindset uh, that come with it, it's reliably causing the kinds of problems that would be natural because that's the direction the financial incentives go in. Now, there are other people who roll their eyes at me and they're like, hourly billing is fine. I'm like, yeah, because you're doing great right now. So you're not feeling the pain. So great. You know, know that this exists. And if things hopefully things don't ever take a downturn. But if, you know, in five years you feel like you're stuck, then come back and say hello. But <laughs> it just reminded me of something that happened a couple of weeks ago. I had to find a new stylist for my hair. I found the perfect person. I never asked the price, had no idea what it was going to cost. I went for a consult, loved her, came back for the appointment. And it was a three hour long appointment. Okay, so the cut, the color, they do everything. And so when we're done, she tells me it was uh, $205. And I was like, really? That's all? Because I'm used to much higher prices for that stuff. She was booked out and the whole thing. And and I I tried to keep my face like not. Oh, so I I paid her. And as we're chatting, she she pulls out a card. And it doesn't have the branding of the salon, which I love the salon branding, which is how I happened to notice it. And she pulled it out. It's completely different, not nearly as good. And she said, here's, you know, here's my card. These are my real colors. And she wasn't on the website. 
Her face wasn't on there. Her bio wasn't on the website. I would never have known she existed. And she said, well, you know, I've only been here since October. I brought all my clients with me. I'm really busy. So it's like, didn't really seem to be that big of a deal. And I turned to her and said, well, what would happen if you were on there and you started to build your brand and people know about you? She said, uh, I don't know. I said, you could charge more. <laughs> and she's like, oh, <laughs> and the light bulb went off. I digress. Yeah. But it's those stories, you know, when you've got your big idea, those stories are everywhere. You can't not see them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just crop up everywhere. People ask me, how can you write an email every single day? And I'm like, because once you go deep on something, you see it everywhere. And it becomes more of a, you know, I see the world through that lens because I picked a lens. A day hardly goes by when I don't see something that relates, that turns into a story that I can tell. And in fact, I've written so many emails that it's almost a thousand at this point that I can't remember what I've already written. (laughs) So I I try to only write them about something that happened to me that day. So I know I'm not repeating myself. (laughs) So I don't have to go back through and say, did I write this already? Oh, well, I know. And I, I never use real names in, in my blog posts. And so sometimes I'll talk about a situation, not talk about the person, but what happened. And I have to be careful, like, okay, did I mention this before? And so Joe might have three different names that I've used. And I don't remember because <laughs> they're fake names. <laughs> I have no memory for that. The real ones, yes. But yeah. Right. Yeah. I feel like we could go a little bit deeper on the confidence slash courage area. Yeah, because I've got one more, but I don't think it's as important as that. Let's talk more about that. Right. So and all of these things sort of circle around each other and have some overlap. The, the courage slash confidence thing, it's critical. I don't think I've ever met anybody. Very rarely have I met someone who was like at a zero on either one of those things who also worked for themselves because it takes a certain amount of courage to even become self-employed. Once you have a mission, like you, once you have an audience who you want to help or, you know, whether it's people who are trying to learn JavaScript and asking for the usual suspects just gets derision aimed their direction. Like, oh, how could you be so foolish or whatever? Or, you know, whatever. There's certain certain audience that you have a connection with and an empathy with. You're, you're naturally going to have some confidence or you wouldn't you'd just be working for someone else and keeping your mouth shut, I suppose. I, but, but still, even people who have the courage of their convictions or strongly believe what it is that they believe and they strongly believe in their big idea, the confidence stuff manifests itself in their pricing where they feel like it's oh, this is easy for me. It's not worth anything. It's not worth that much. How could I ever charge this much? And it's like, well, if you want to keep on doing this, you need to fund the mission. You need to keep the lights on. So for people who are getting, you know, you can give it away for free to the long tail of people who don't, you know, have basically no money or whatever the situation is. But for the people who are massively benefiting from it, capture some of that value back and they'll be happy. You'll be happy. You can give them more attention. You can keep giving stuff away for free to the long tail and hopefully get some of those long tailors into the, the spike at the front. I see uh, some confidence problems crop up in pricing and I see courage problems, very, very similar related, but in the marketing side. So like a little bit farther up the funnel when they, they have a fear of sharing. 
So there's, it's sort of tied to the abundance mentality thing. You know, there's the fixed pie, so to speak. And they're afraid that that's giving it away for free. They're afraid that's going to devalue their services. They're afraid that someone's going to rip off their big idea. And they, they have this sort of like, they retreat into that kind of scarcity mentality that can kind of crop up. So just believing that doing the right thing all the time is going to create like good karma for you that's going to turn into checks eventually, that takes some courage. It's never like an, an obvious uh, straight line from share everything you know for free online to have a, a, a thriving authority business. It's it's not obvious. It, it's like different every case. But we've talked about it in the past as increasing your luck surface area. Like if you're putting the idea out there as as much and often and clearly as you can, it's going to attract the kind of people who are going to be at the head of the long tail and can actually afford to pay you something. I see it crop up in, in marketing and sales where there's problems with, uh, or, you know, like opportunity for improvement in the confidence and courage spaces. I think of it a lot with um, marketing, sales, and branding. So it's the courage to niche. That's a big one. And there's the fear that, oh, if I specialize, you know, there's not going to be enough work. But the other part of it is I work with a lot of people who are, I mean, they're amazing and they don't put themselves out there. And they have a they have a thriving business. Don't get me wrong; they're making money. They you know they may have a team of people. They're doing well, but they don't put themselves out there online. There's a big fear around that, and a lot of times that's what happens when they come to me. They're like, "I know I have to do this. I really don't want to, but I know I have to." And then once they see how they can focus their online presence on the big idea on you know the right set of messages and that aligns with who they are and what they believe in then the fear goes way down it's a lot easier but it's it, there's that push through i just i think a lot of us just aren't naturally wired to be pushing ourselves and our expertise out on this big market I had a question uh, just before we started recording from one of my subscribers, and he was responding to a, a an email, and he, he said, well, how do I create unforgettable work, or how do you create unforgettable work for your tribe if your tribe doesn't know you exist? <laughs> chicken, egg, chicken, egg. It goes back to you've got to start somewhere, and you've got to have a little courage and when I say a little, you know, beyond what it takes just to start your business, you got to have a little courage and and some confidence in yourself. Mm. Yeah, you believe in the idea. Yeah, and and it's it's kind of easier if it's about the idea versus about you. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you believe it is a value to your audience, you owe it to them to let them know about it. If you believe that that's true, why wouldn't you let them know about it? Well, I don't want to be pushy and spammy. It's like, look, if you believe that those people are suffering. I'm not talking about spamming them, but at least at least walk around with a t-shirt on that says I, you know, digitally walk around with a t-shirt on like in your Twitter profile, your LinkedIn profile. Put on that t-shirt that says I help X with Y. At least, at least do that. And one last thing I want to just mention about courage, which I think is important to think about if if that's clicking with you, dear listener is that courage is not the lack of fear it's the it's the ability to act in the face of fear so even though some of these things uh, are scarier seem scarier than they actually are and when you do them you're like oh that that was actually no big deal um there's still certain things that you will do that will scare the crap out of you every time <laughs> and Amen. that doesn't it doesn't go away doesn't go nope. away 
but nope. courage is doing it anyway. So like launching a new product, like so you go to do something that might not work and you're putting yourself out there, you're stepping up to the plate and taking a huge swing and you don't want to strike out. You don't want to look like a, look like, I don't know what, like someone who tried, like what's wrong with that, but still it's scary and, uh, it, and it doesn't go away. So that's, I, I do mean that specifically with courage. It's not a lack of fear. That's not something to strive for. Sometimes I use it as a compass where like, you know, I know if I'm undertaking something that's going to be a lot of work and I'm starting to get really nervous, I'm like, all right, I'm onto something. <laughs> I'm def I use it as like, okay, I'm going in the right direction. Cause if it was, if, if you're just always doing the safe thing, never taking any risks, well, there's no reward. It's certainly, you're going to uh, dramatically slow down your progress if that's what you do. Well, and I think as you get out more and more and your name becomes known and you build a thriving business, there's actually can be an uptick in your fear because now you're you're not like just starting out wondering where the next dollar is coming from. Now it's coming in nicely and you don't want to rock that boat on some level. And or you feel like you have, especially as, as an authority, you feel like you have a, in air quotes, image right? To uphold. So all of a sudden, maybe you're not making those big, bold moves. I mean, this is something you just, you have to have. It is part of the authority mindset and it's not, it, it doesn't go away. In, in fact, it, I think it intensifies. Yeah. I mean, the bigger the audience gets, the more likely it is that someone's going to throw a rock at you. So I feel like this is a, a half pivot again into something like thick skin or, um, something that's a little bit different than confidence and courage. It's just like, look, you're putting yourself out there. Not everyone's going to like it. And that's just a fact. If you're doing anything interesting at all, someone's going to not like it. So you just need to be like, all right, it's not for you. Move on. I have a client that just this last week published something and he didn't tell me he was writing it ahead of time. He told me after it was already accepted for publishing because he knew what I would say, I think. And uh, it's very controversial, very, very, very. And he was convinced that probably people on both sides of his audience would, would it was quasi-political, would hate it. And he said, I just, I have to do it. I have to do it. So anyway, uh, he did it. And I, somebody else picked it up and I was reading the comments and, oh my God, they were they were horrible. And this particular client does have very thick skin. He he's a veteran, and so I I sent him a note and said, just don't read the comments <laughs> on this one. And he said, I never do on something like that. I he doesn't even look at them. As we're recording this, they just announced the Oscar nominees. That would be a great example is to look to Hollywood and see what happens when whoever you follow, you know, musician, actor, actress, and see what happens to them when they do something good and when they do something quote unquote bad. And bad might just be that they wore an unflattering dress one day. As a rule, our situations are a whole lot simpler. <laughs> Be, be grateful you don't have to deal with um, Hollywood reporters. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's true. I think we've got a nice list. This has been fun. Is there anything else we should add before we wrap up? Well, I was going to add something about content. I don't know. Maybe we've covered it. But I just think, I think an authority looks at everything as content. It's a conversation, you know, something that happens at the gym or something that happens, world news, local news, national news. 
there's always something. It's all content. It's all fodder. And it can be the thing that sparks something related to your expertise that can help change people's minds and bring them over, over to your side. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that touches on a bunch of them, a bunch of topics we talked about. Great. All right. Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.